Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. You're about to listen to a historical episode of Dark Poutine. After episode 149, you will find Scott is no longer with the show. In an effort to maintain continuity and offer listeners as many episodes as possible, we are leaving the episodes in which he co-hosted intact. Thank you. Loons. Hello and welcome to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown, your creator and host. Oh. With me as usual is my good friend and co-host, Scott Hemingway. Say hello, Scott. Hello, world. I don't think the world listens. There's a few sure. people. Sure. Sure. Do, um, do we have any Istanbul listeners? I don't know. No Turkish people are listening. I can pretty much guarantee that. Erdogan. Come on, man. I should probably look before I tell you that, but... <laughs> <clears throat> but it's, I'm standing behind my hello world. Fair enough. I'm standing firm. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing. We're not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We're two ordinary Canadian schmoes chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. Chomperoo, chomperoo. Listeners who feel they are in crisis can contact the Crisis Text Line in Canada by texting HOME to 686868. In the US or UK, text 741741. The service will match you with a volunteer counsellor who is supervised by a licensed, trained mental health professional. Crisis Text Line is free 24-7 support for those in crisis. For more information, go to crisistextline.ca in Canada or crisistextline.org globally. Let's get on with the show. Is this going to be another uplifting one? I guarantee that you're going to be angry again. Great! On the island paradise Bermuda in the early morning hours of July 3rd, 1996, a group of friends were riding in a car headed toward Ferry Reach Park on the northeastern edge of the island. The vehicle's occupants were startled when the car's headlights illuminated a form lying in the middle of the dark and isolated road. They pulled the car over and got out to investigate. The group presumed at first it was an injured dog, but as they approached, they realized that this was a nearly naked and bloodied teenage girl. Oh. She was 17-year-old Rebecca Middleton from Belleville, Ontario. Although alive when the strangers found her, Rebecca died from her injuries before authorities could get to her. Well, that's all I needed. I'm out. You are listening to episode 143, No Justice for Rebecca Middleton. Oh, Christ. 
Yeah. 16, Bermuda. 17. 17 is what I meant when I said 16. Bermuda. We would be remiss if we failed to mention the Natalie Holloway case and its similarities to Rebecca's. Natalie was the U.S. teen who disappeared and was presumed murdered during a trip to Aruba in 2005. Mm -hmm. Holloway's case has become a media and internet sensation as her family has gone to great lengths to find her remains and bring her killer or killers to justice. A Vandersloot's pretty much confirmed now. Canadian media did pick up on Rebecca Middleton's story, of course. It was mm -hmm. rather large here. Becky's case has been covered on various platforms. Still, it has never had the level of notoriety that Holloway's has. Mm. But it is no less compelling and in many ways even more frustrating. So are you familiar with this one, Scott? Not by name. I'm sure okay. as you start to go through it, I'll probably start to recall it. Yeah. But no, no, I'm not recalling it by name, which is sad unto itself. On June 26, 1979, Dave and Cindy Middleton welcomed their third child, a daughter, that the couple named Rebecca Jane. It was the nickname Becky that stuck for the little girl who had two older brothers, Matthew and Mark, and they watched over her. Becky hung with her brothers and was a bit of a tomboy. You know, two older brothers, you're going to be. It's going to happen. Yeah. She was outdoorsy and active, loved the water, and enjoyed fishing, sailing, and swimming. She grew into a spirited and pretty blonde-haired and blue-eyed teenager. Although Dave and Cindy had divorced, Becky took it all in stride. They divorced when she was about 13. Mm. Dave stayed on at his job as a superintendent at the Belleville Water Plant, and Cindy moved away with her new fella. I mean, these things can be done well. I mean, yeah. I, look, I look at my parents. I, I, neither has ever said an ill thing of the other, so divorces can it can happen, happen, yeah, without people having a lot of rancor and that kind of exact stuff. disdain. And there's always know, a reason for sure, but and it's always in a kid's eye going to be painful, sure, but can be done well. From Carol Schumann's book "Kill Me Once, Kill Me Twice: Murder on the Queen's Playground," quote: "All three children, then in their teens, romped between Dave's house overlooking the bay and Cindy's not far away, where she lived with Wayne and worked for the Canadian government. Becky cherished her older brothers and welcomed Wayne's children, her new step-siblings, John and Debbie. All of the kids, for the most part, accepted family changes, continuing to bring their friends to the parents' houses. Sounds like a very healthy family. Yeah, and apparently Becky was always kind of the center of mm. all the kids in the house kind the, of thing. The proverbial glue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was just a, a people person. Yeah, oh, lovely. Becky was friendly and well-liked. She had lots of buddies, and one of those was named Jasmine Means, who folks called Jazzy. Yeah. Uh, they had been friends since the girls were seven years old. Why doesn't anybody call me Jazzy? I don't want to get into the word Jazzy with you, Scott. Oh, God. Did not, I didn't mean to dredge that up. Yeah, there's an inside joke that oh. actually we cannot get into. Uh, next paragraph. Jasmine's parents had divorced as well, and her dad, Rick, had remarried and moved to Bermuda. This is where Jazzy and her brother visited when they had extended breaks from school. Jasmine and Becky talked a lot about Becky coming to visit in Bermuda one summer. So in 1995, they tried to put it together, but they were unable to make it happen that year. Could you imagine a better thing? You have a reason to go to Bermuda? Yeah, your dad, well, it's far away. Your dad's there. Oh, I know, but it's like, oh, I'm going to be spending this spring break in Bermuda. What a shame. I Like, oh, wow. Bermuda was far away from sleepy little Belleville, mm -hmm. around 1,700 kilometers as the crow flies and a three-hour flight from Toronto. 
it's a long way for a teenager to go on her own. Mm-hmm. You're the father of a teenage girl, Scott. Yep. Violet's a bit younger than Becky was, so yeah. she may not be asking to take off on her own just yet. What are your thoughts as a dad on this one? Your daughter comes to you and says, Daddy, my friend's dad lives in Hawaii, say. They are going there for the summer, and ex-friend wants me to come to Hawaii with her for a month. So are we talking about at 17? Maybe, yeah. Well, she was starting to ask at 15. It's really difficult to say because it's very dependent on the child and right. how, what kind yeah. of responsibilities they have demonstrated uh, thus far in life. Mm. At 15, I, I think I would I would draw the line no. Yeah, I think my parents would have done the same uh, for me. At 17 specifically, with a good, trustworthy history. I would not want her to, yeah. but I, I would, sure. I, I think at 17, I, I would probably allow her to, Yeah, you know, um, I, as long as I know the family, as long as, um, I have constant means of communication and stuff. Yep. Not everybody will know where Bermuda is. They might know where the triangle is. Well, exactly. <laughs> uh, Bermuda is a British overseas territory in the North Atlantic Ocean. It's approximately 1,035 kilometers east of Cape Hatteras in North Carolina. It's 1,236 kilometers south of Cape Sable Island, Nova Scotia. Okay. And it is 1,759 kilometers northeast of Cuba and 1,538 kilometers due north of the British Virgin Islands. So if you know where those places are, you can get a good sense of where Bermuda is. So it's not particularly close to anywhere. No, it's out in the middle of the ocean. (laughs) (laughs) Though it is typically referred to in the singular, Bermuda consists of 181 islands. Oh, shit. And the largest island is called Main Island, of course. Did not know this. The capital city of Bermuda is Hamilton. Bermuda is internally self-governing with its own constitution and cabinet of ministers selected from elected members of the lower house of parliament that enact local laws. The government of the United Kingdom is ultimately responsible for ensuring good governance within British overseas territories and retains responsibility for defense and foreign relations. Hmm. So Bermuda is still a colony for the Brits. Yeah, fascinating. As of 2018, it has a population of 71,176, making it the most populous of the British overseas territories. Hmm. Bermuda's largest economic sectors are the offshore insurance, reinsurance, and tourism. Bermuda had one of the world's highest GDP per capita for most of the 20th century. Son of a bitch, really? That's probably the banking stuff that's going on Offshore, there. man, yeah. yes. <laughs> Bermuda's climate is usually described as subtropical, primarily due to the chilly but generally mild winter temperatures. Unlike other areas designated as subtropical, summers are also relatively mild, with temperatures not rising in most years above 30 degrees Celsius. That's pretty hot, but during the hottest months of July and August, places like Florida get really hot. Yeah, so it's like the Vancouver of tropical islands. Yes, exactly. Just consistent. Yeah. Bermuda lies in Hurricane Alley and thus is prone to severe weather. However, it receives some protection from a coral reef and its position at the north of the belt, limiting the direction and severity of approaching storms. That sounds pretty bloody ideal. Right? But that's probably why it's such a popular place to go and to live. We, I mean, we could record there, Mike. I would like to so, do that. That's all I'm saying. 
It does sound like a nice place to visit. It really does. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, if one of my parents were there, I'm like, hey, you want to come over this Christmas? I would love to. That would be great. Are you paying? Abs- yeah, absolutely. That's, my, that's the next I'm, question. I'm already on my way. <laughs> so another year passed. Becky was even more adamant that she wanted to go to Bermuda for the summer with Jazzy. After many phone calls between Rick Means and Becky's mm-hmm. mom, Cindy, and Dave, that summer of 1996, they thought maybe this would be the right time for yep. Becky's trip. Yep. Becky, she would soon be 17, and her journey to Bermuda would be a part of her birthday gift from her parents. That makes sense. Rick Means later told the documentary crew that the girls were two BFFs heading out on a dream trip. Yep. Uh, again, as uh, your earlier question, as a parent, I think as long as I've got that dialogue going with the family. Yeah. I'd be scared shitless. You're still, you're more comfortable though, because yes, you know I, that there's I, a parent on the other end who cares. Because at, at some point yeah. with your children, you have to start increasing freedoms. Yes. At 17, you can't shut them in anymore. Yeah. So the date was set. Becky and Jazzy would leave Toronto on June 20th, 1996. After an overnight stay with friends in Whitby, the girls were off. Becky was all smiles in her favorite hat and her sundress. And there's a picture of her on the plane in that particular hat and sundress. Before they headed out, though, Jasmine was having trouble finding her purse. After a quick search, it turned up and they all had a laugh. And uh, Cindy said, please don't lose Becky while you're down there. From Kill Me Once, Kill Me Twice, Carol Schumann's book, quote, Becky scribbled to her dad on an Air Canada postcard as their jet prepared for takeoff. We're having a great time already. Talk to you later, alligator. As they flew over the Atlantic, a fellow passenger took pictures of them with Becky's new camera, an early birthday gift for this special trip. The pilot circled the isolated island in the glistening ocean on a windless, radiant day. We're in the Bermuda Triangle, Becky giggled, and made scary faces at Jasmine, the more serious of the two. We talked about how warm the weather was going to feel when we swam, Jasmine remembered. What a lovely visual. Like, that's just this. Well, that's Carol Schumann painting that. The author. Yeah, but I'm, 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 still, yeah. it's a well done, Carol Schumann. Like, imagine you're like 17, yeah. you're, you're Becky, and it's just like, oh my God, the, the absolute joy. Well, that's kind of the way I felt when I was going to Paris when I was 16 with I the think you, French you, club. You probably, if I remember your stories correctly, you had a very different trip. I was a little drunk for the whole time. Yeah, a little drunk for the whole time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. Rick Means picked the girls up at the airport, and on the ride home, he laid down some rules for the visit. The talk was mostly safety tips, like don't rent mopeds. People get killed on those things. The roads are twisty and turny. People can fall off. There's accidents. I know my mom burned her leg badly after falling off one on a trip to Bermuda with my dad years ago. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Oh, shit. So Rick said that if the girls needed to get somewhere, they could take the bus or he would drive Mm -hmm. them. Makes sense to me. Yeah, yeah. I didn't realize mopeds were so hazardous, but sure. Yeah. Yeah. The girls spent the next few days doing all the touristy stuff together, going into St. George's and there's piratey kind of things because of Abs- the area. Of course it's, there would be. stockades yeah. Yeah. and all that kind of stuff. So they had a lot of fun. They celebrated Becky's 17th birthday with a cake yeah. and a bit of a party with Jazzy's dad and his wife, Lynn. It indeed was the trip of a lifetime. Again, it sounds like a great place to celebrate a birthday, too. Everything is coming up roses so right? far. Like, this is just bliss. Becky missed her folks and wrote to them. That's nice. According to Kill Me Once, Kill Me Twice, 
Quote, Meanwhile, Cindy had sent a postcard to Becky, joking about the purse incident in the airport and adding a postscript. Jasmine, don't lose Becky. End quote. Becky and Jazzy met three boys from the UK, also in Bermuda for the summer. Russell McCann and Ben Turtle were visiting with their friend, Jonathan Cassidy, whose dad had transferred to the Bermuda police from the UK. So he was a cop in the UK. A lot of times, English-speaking countries will take a police officer from another English-speaking country. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. The five youngsters hit it off right away, and the girls thought the boys were cute, and vice versa. This is where the dad in me starts to get punchy. Right, I know. (laughs) Two weeks into the visit on July 2nd, 1996, Rick and Lynn Means drove the girls into the old town area of St. George's to meet up with the three boys. Before the girls got out of the vehicle, Rick reminded them that he had to get up early and that Jasmine should not wait too late to call. It was Russell McCann's birthday. The group had planned a boat trip, but that part of the meetup got called off due to rain. Mm. They had reorganized their plans and decided last minute to go to the White Horse Pub at 8 Kings Square in St. George's. From the pub's website, The White Horse Restaurant is one of Bermuda's oldest and most famous pub and seafood restaurants in Bermuda. Passed over many generations, the White Horse is well known for its great food and lively bar scene where locals and visitors come to eat and have a great time. Enjoy waterfront dining at its best, along with spectacular views overlooking the St. George's Harbor. Stop in for one of our delicious signature cocktails with inside and outside bars to choose. Plus, for all you sports fans out there, enjoy wall-to-wall TV coverage of all major sporting events at St. George's number one sports bar. Feel like a night of music and dancing? Then visit Light Night Club, which will get the heart pumping and is open on select nights only and for private events. So it sounds like a great place. As far as the advertising goes, yeah, I'm sold. Mm-hmm. Advertising never lies. It is a nice It sounds like it. I scoured through the yeah. reviews. And, and all it looks things. like it's a it legit. looks like a fantastic oh, wow. place, yeah. The drinking age in Bermuda is 18, and it's been that way since 1974. So, the Canada. So, well, 19. But that's closer than 21. Sure. And as the girls were only 17, it's clear that maybe checking ID might not have been a priority at the time. (sighs) From Kill Me Once, Kill Me Twice, the five met at about 7.30 p.m., listened to music, talked, and despite the girls' ages, drank beer and mixed drinks. Someone threw in a challenge. Who could drink beer quickest? Becky lost by one sip. So she had to buy a round of gold sluggers. And this was Jasmine's term for goldschlager, an Italian liqueur. But goldschlager, are you sure that's Italian? Because that's spelled very German. Yeah. But whatever. Jonathan Cassidy later estimated they had about six to seven drinks each. So not not a lot of drinks. At the end. At the age of 17. We don't know how experienced a drinker any of any of them were, so we don't want to make any assumptions. Mike, you're talking to a parent here? Uh, zero is the acceptable answer. Oh, well. So six? Yeah, six or seven was not a, not a lot for me oh at that God. age. Oh. Yeah. Oh, well. Well, yeah. Violet, Mom and dad, if Violet, you're listening, if you're, close your ears. And I was going to say, Violet, if you're listening, first off, no to Bermuda. Yes. And don't you dare drink ever. It's going to go great. Continuing with the quote... They took pictures with Becky's new camera showing the clothes the girls wore. Jasmine wore a white top, long baggy jeans, and a sleeveless denim top. She stood about 5 feet 8 inches and had long blonde hair. Becky was smaller. She wore a soft white 
thin strap tank top with a crisp white blouse over it and a blue denim skirt and brown sandals. Yeah. Very, very much what you would be wearing. Yeah, conservative. Yeah. I've seen the pictures of yeah. her at, at the bar, and it was like a just a white long sleeve shirt. Yeah. Nothing provocative yeah. or any any of that kind of thing at all. Yeah. After the pub closed, and it apparently it closes around 11. I don't know about that night. Oh, okay. It closes early. Yeah, yeah. Um, they went back to Jonathan Cassidy's home to continue to party. Becky paired up with Jonathan, and Jazzy paired up with Russell. Just having fun that teenagers do, there was no sex, according to later statements. So they were just having a good time. Just having a good time. Jasmine, however, missed her curfew and thought her dad would be upset if she called now. Jasmine didn't want to get into trouble, as both she and Becky had been drinking underage. Back at home, Rick and Lynn weren't really concerned. Jasmine was a smart and responsible girl. I'm having flash forwards. The girls called a cab to take them home at about 1 a.m., getting a pickup time from the dispatcher of about 15 to 20 minutes. At 1.45, the taxi had not shown up. Jasmine called again and was told the driver had been by, but no one was outside. They gave the same time frame for another taxi. Again, no taxi arrived. They were waiting outside the whole time. Jasmine called the cab company again for the third time at 2.16 a.m. At 2.30, Jonathan Cassidy went inside and went to bed. He left Jazzy and Becky outside by the curb in front of his home to wait for their ride. He thought, just thought, okay, the taxi will probably It'll show up show eventually. Up. Yeah. If they need anything, they can come back to the knock on the door. The other two boys, Russell and Ben, had already fallen asleep in the house. So the girls waited. Mm -hmm. Still no taxi. At around 3 a.m., a local man riding a motorcycle stopped to chat with the girls. He sees two... 3 a.m., yeah. Two young, blonde-haired girls sitting yep. on the curb yep. stops to chat. This guy's name was Dean Lottimore. Dean spoke with the girls for a few moments, asking if they had a smoke. The three were still chatting there five minutes later when another motorcycle slowly went by, heading in the opposite direction as Dean had been going. The second bike, with two black male riders on board, braked and did a U-turn. They pulled up closest to Becky and called out to Dean. So they Dean, Dean, they all knew yep. each other. Becky and the two men on the motorcycle began chatting. Jasmine remembered the men on the second bike, particularly the driver, seemed interested in Becky. Hmm. The men asked Becky about the necklace she wore. Jasmine had given it to her as a gift. Hmm. The men, learning the girls had no better way home, offered to take them home. <sighs> they had two extra helmets. Hesitant at first, the girls saw no other way to get back to Jazzy's place, so the bikes were their best option at that time. Yeah, this is where it gets really terrifying as a parent, because it's like, okay, yeah, you, you, drunk, 17, yeah. yep. stranded. Strangers. But they seem friendly. Like this Motorcycles. Is, this is exactly what a lot of kids in that situation would say, sure, yeah. I'll take that ride. Well, they were hesitant, though. They didn't just jump at the chance. Yeah. Becky, as she was smaller than Jasmine, climbed onto the second bike in between the two riders. Oh, Jasmine climbed onto Dean's bike. The two vehicles roared off into the warm Bermuda night. The bike Becky was on was in the lead. Jasmine told Dean to take it slow, which he did, but the other bike was moving quickly, and before long it had disappeared. Dean maintained his slow speed and never caught up. We'll take a break. 
right here. Cliffhanger. And we're back. My comment would be always call your parents. Doesn't matter what time of night it is. Mm -hmm. You're afraid, you're drunk, whatever it is. Like the punishment that you get maybe is going to be a lot less harsh than what might happen. Yes. Yes. And we're not victim blaming here. We're not saying oh, God, that they, no. they did the wrong thing. We're, we're just, just giving making advice. sure that, that, that kid's moving forward. Yeah. We're, you, we're just, giving advice. Yes. And, uh, I'm so, so glad my kids are just going to skip the teenage years. Oh, are they? Yeah. Oh, fantastic. I'm so glad we got that option when we got them. There were two routes to take and Dean took the shortest route that he knew. When Jasmine and Dean arrived at Jasmine's dad's house, Becky was not there. Not outside, anyway. Jasmine was upset. She thought she was going to get into big trouble. Mm -hmm. It was late now, and Becky seemed like she was missing. How could she explain that? Yeah, exactly. Jasmine used the key, hidden outside, to go in and check for Becky, and Dean left. Jasmine searched the house for Becky, but her friend was not there either. Oh, panic. Jasmine decided that her concern for Rebecca overrode her fear of reprisal from her father, so she woke Rick up to tell him that Becky was missing. Yep. Rick was upset, of course. His daughter told him that the girl who had been entrusted to his care for the summer was missing. Yep. Rick and Jasmine hopped into Rick's car and began to scour the area for Becky. Jasmine was still afraid that she'd get into trouble, especially as she and Becky had been riding motorcycles with strangers. So she did not tell Rick the whole truth at first. I, I think a lot of 17-year-olds uh, Absolutely. Would. Uh, yeah. I don't fault any yeah. any of the victims here. And they're you're, all you're, victims. You're also not thinking or, or expecting mm-hmm. this person to have had uh, damage or harm done to them. No. So you're, you're hoping that you'll yeah. find her, you can get your stories together. And back, problem averted. And back to calling your parents, I chose not to do that the night that I had the incident that happened to me. Mm-hmm. I had that option, mm-hmm. but I didn't take it because I thought I'll be the big boy, mm-hmm. you know? Yep. And yep. big boy ended up having PTSD for 30 odd years. Yep. So fantastic. That yep. was a great decision. But I've forgiven myself for making a bad decision at you, the time. You're, you, in the moment, you're just trying to survive yeah, and make the decisions that you feel are the right ones in that moment. 99.9% of the time, nothing is going to happen. Yeah, yeah. But there's that 0.1% chance that it will. And I don't know, you know. Yeah, I do. You're our resident, you're the show's resident dad. Yes, Mike. So, what would you like to know? So what if this were one of Violet's or Olivia's buddies? Like, how do you think you would react? So Olivia and her friend, they go across the street to go to the movies. Yeah, yeah. No problem. Yeah. Should be no problem. Yeah. You can go to the movie, enjoy yourself, just come right home. Yep. She comes home and tells you, I can't find my friend. Yeah. Like, and that friend is staying overnight at your place and all this kind of stuff. What do you do? Again, you don't know until you're in these situations. What I would like to think I would do Mm. is put aside my fears for shit. I was responsible. They're going to get, and just just approach it in a triage manner in, in a, okay, what do we need to do first? Call 911. Yeah. Call 911. What, once that's done, I've got to alert the family. Yeah. Once, you know, like, is and then go looking. Yeah. Like, I, well, I think while looking, you, you know, yeah. but you, yeah, cause it's got cell phones. Yeah, yeah. exactly. But yeah, I, I, ju- I try to just take a, triage you don't just approach. sit on the couch and make all the phone calls. Well, I don't know. 
depends on what's missing. That's attractive to you, I know. Yeah, but. It is. It's appealing. But yeah, like, yeah, I try to just take it uh, anytime I'm confronted with a very sudden chaotic situation i tried okay what do i need to what do needs first? to happen right now yeah don't yeah. don't look at the yep. look at the macro picture not the or look at the micro picture not the macro like yeah. you want to just okay i gotta hone in on what's going on right first now. things first yep around 3 30 a.m 13 kilometers away from the means residence dana rollins a local dj was driving on the dark and ferry reach road an acquaintance had asked rollins for a lift to his tent in the park and dana agreed to drive him there were three others in the car as well. It was one of the other passengers who alerted Dana to the thing lying in the road. Dana pulled over and walked up and found a semi-nude young woman. Her back was to him. She was in the fetal position. Dana knelt down beside the woman and realized she was alive but barely. Oh my God. There was a lot of blood. Tears stained her face. Her neck looked severely cut, so she was unable to talk, but she was trying. Oh... Dana yelled for someone to get to a payphone and call for help. He wanted help not only for the girl, but he feared whoever had done this to her might still be nearby. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. As the person ran off, Dana and the other girls did their best to comfort the girl and stem the bleeding with his hand. Oh. The girl began to fade. She had lost too much blood. Oh my God, I can't help but feel for absolutely everybody there. Yeah. So you're Poor, the person running for the phone even is just like, oh my God, am I going to make it in time? Yeah. You know, if she doesn't make it, maybe what if I ran faster? What if I had yeah. stayed? And so like, yeah. Every single person there is traumatized. Yeah. Is severely. What else and could poor, I have done? Yeah. Poor Becky. Yeah. Oh my God. Jasmine and Rick were driving near the area where Jazzy had last seen Becky when an ambulance passed. Jasmine later told the, an ID channel, a documentary crew, that she knew the ambulance was for Becky and said out loud, that's for her. Oh. Rick had told her, don't say that. I mean, he's probably terrified at this time. 100%. It was too late for Becky Middleton. She died before the ambulance arrived. My heart. Oh, poor Becky. The sun had come up by the time Rick and Jasmine returned to the Means residence. Rick immediately went into the house and called police to tell them that Rebecca Middleton was missing. He was given the runaround about reporting missing persons and told to wait 24 hours before filing a report. God, I hate that shit. Rick argued with the person on the other end of the phone. Suddenly and unexpectedly, Rick was put on hold. When the police officer came back onto the line, Rick was told to go to Ferry Reach. He asked if they had found Becky. The only reply he got was that he was to go to Fairy Reach. Rick slammed down the phone and he and Jasmine left again, this time for Fairy Reach, unsure what they would find there. I think their guts knew what they were going to find. Mm -hmm. That situation, uh, calling to report somebody missing. Oh, sure, I'll hold. Oh, you want me to come down there now? Yeah. You won't tell me? Like, And just, oh my God, that fear... Yeah. That fear, the But at some sometimes there's also a denial. It's like, it can't be this bad. That's there's true. those denial yeah. thoughts that are, it's not as bad as I think it is. It's going to be fine. That's true. I have family members who are like that. It's a coping mechanism mm -hmm. to try to make it so that you don't have to. Yeah, you're uh, more of a pessimist. So it, it depends on the situation, but I, I tend to be the sky is falling. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. what I'm saying. I'm chicken little chicken in, a lot of, <laughs> in a lot of situations. You and our friend Kyle. When Rick and Jasmine arrived, there were police cars and cops everywhere. It was a crime scene. 
Rick told Jasmine to wait in the car. He did not want her to see what he was beginning to believe that he might find beyond oh. the police tape. Rick rushed up and was stopped by an officer. While he was being asked if he was the one who had called in, he noticed the body bag. Rick was told to brace himself. Still choked by emotion years later, Rick told an ID documentary crew, quote, they unzipped the body bag and Becky was in it. Oh my God. He went on to say that he could not describe what he saw. He said that all he could see was that, quote, sweet little girl he had dropped off at St. George's only hours before. He said he remembered trying to go in and give Becky a hug, but an officer had pulled him back. They did not want him to contaminate the evidence. Jasmine, sitting in the car, had to watch and listen as her dad screamed and cried as he broke down. I'm sure for Rick, in that moment, he's feeling like it's his child. Rick and Jasmine drove home. The whole way, Rick felt nauseated not only by what he had just seen, but in realizing it was up to him to explain to Cindy and Dave that Becky was dead. And worse, she'd been murdered. He said that he felt responsible. Can you imagine the fear you have in making that call? Mm. You know you have to. You have, there's no There's no option. way, yeah, there's yeah. no way around it. I mean, it's just the range of emotions because you, you recognize that there's a good chance they may be upset and blame me. Mm-hmm. And who could blame them? Um, so you're going to have that immense guilt. But then you're also having to tell people, yeah, you've just lost the most important thing to you. Yep. Like there's nothing, there's no silver lining in a conversation. No, there's like definitely that. not. Rick notified Cindy first. She did not believe him initially that her girl was dead and, and that she had been murdered. But Rick was adamant. From a W5 report on the case, quote, I was in shock. I couldn't believe it. I wanted to be right there. I said, are you sure she didn't get hit by a bus or something? Says Cindy. Wow. Cindy's dad. Cindy's dad called Dave Middleton to let him know that his darling daughter Becky was not only dead, but had been viciously murdered. Meanwhile, the investigation had begun. Rick was shocked when he heard Jasmine tell police that Becky had been riding on a motorcycle with two men. This was the first he'd heard of it. Becky did not know their names only that there were two young black males on a bike, a description that would have fit many Bermudans. Mm. She knew Dean was the guy who had driven her, but didn't know these other two. That's something to work with, though. It is. Not far from the spot Dana Rollins had discovered Becky, investigators found her bloodied clothing. It had been cut from her by her killers. Her necklace was nowhere to be found. Police surmised that perhaps the killers had taken it as a souvenir. Word of the murder spread like wildfire. Not only was a young tourist dead, but her killers were still on the loose. According to the experts, this case was mishandled from the very beginning. Oh, God. Evidence was not gathered correctly by officers inexperienced in homicide cases, and the pathologist was not a forensic specialist. He had not handled anything like this before. From Carol Schumann's Kill Me Once, Kill Me Twice, quote, Dr. Henry Pierce police and prison's medical officer's report, quote, there was evidence suggesting forceful vaginal and possibly anal intercourse shortly before death. Her body was so blood-covered that Pierce found it difficult to identify all stab wounds. Blunt force injuries and stabs showed beating and torture. Dr. James Johnston wrote, semen and sexual injury, battering, multiple stabs to her body, both front and back. Her attackers even stabbed Becky's skull, causing severe hemorrhage. Her right lung collapsed, her jugular spat blood, stabs to the right ventricle of her heart, and to her abdomen. 
only a, quote, fine laceration on each of Becky's palms, not multiple cuts that one would expect if she had held up her hands to defend herself, an automatic response. Johnson returned the following day to recheck Becky's body, finding darkened bruises now all over her body. A vicious murder, he wrote. So, holy shit. She is not able to put up her hands. Is the second person holding her? Uh, yeah, either that or a surprise attack. But there's so many wounds mm-hmm. that there was even no, if somebody was no even if somebody came from behind, it's something you're going to turn and you're going to defend yourself. So without a doubt, that's a clear indication that she's either been tied up and held down or somebody's doing it. So those cuts on her head, there were poke-type lacerations on her forehead, oh, and geez. it looked like someone had dragged a serrated knife across her face and stabbed her in the head superficially. Dr. Michael Bodden, who we've all heard of, the famous forensic pathologist who later reviewed the case, said that these injuries were indicative of Becky's killers hurting her to get her to cooperate with them while they attempted to rape her. It's torture. Yes. Yeah, they're torturing her. Uh, Wow, that violence. Uh, If, you know, going back to last week, uh, emotions, Mm -hmm. you know, emotions taking over. Uh, If I was that parent if i was that father or mom um yeah I, I would want to rip these pieces of shit apart yeah slowly violently you do that to my daughter yeah i am going to destroy you it didn't take long before police identified dean Lottimore. dean in turn was brought in to identify the men he said were the ones becky had ridden with Without any barrier between them, Dean was forced to ID face-to-face. <laughs> Bermudan Justice Smith, 17, and Jamaican Kirk Mundy, 21. Another witness had also come forward saying that he'd spoken with the men near the crime scene after the murder. The pair had noticed the witness with his broken-down car and stopped to chat. The man had noticed Mundy's clothes were messy and there was blood on his shirt. Okay. So there you go. We have some evidence. It's pretty strong evidence. So yes, far. it is so far. The two are arrested on July 10th, 1996. On July 12th, police charged Smith with premeditated murder and Mundy with accessory to the crime. Meanwhile, Becky Middleton's body was returned to Canada. She was buried after a tear filled funeral in her hometown at the Methodist United Church. The nightmare for the Middletons was nowhere near over. This is no open and shut case. Great. Mundy was not a good guy. He was already out on bail for armed robbery at the time of Becky Middleton's slaying. Smith was just a kid, a follower, but it appeared no less involved than Mundy. Before forensic DNA evidence could be processed, inexperienced prosecutors, under pressure to get convictions in the murder of a tourist who was also a minor, cut a deal with Mundy. Oh. On October 16, 1996, he agreed to plead guilty to accessory to murder and promised to testify against Smith. He was sentenced to five years in prison for accessory to murder. Only two days after Mundy was sentenced, the DNA evidence processed at the RCMP oh, labs back shit, in Canada, shit, shit, taken from swabs inside and outside Becky's body, indicated that they had found Kirk Mundy's semen. Oh, my God. He was already in jail, serving five years for his bit in the crime. As the accessory, not the murderer or the rapist. Clearly not an accessory if you're... 
yeah. seminal fluid is in the victim. Mundy was now claiming that he and Becky had consensual sex that night and that Smith was the killer. People, obviously, were calling for blood. They wanted Mundy and Smith both to be tried for Becky's murder. Yes! On January 9th, 1998, before Smith's trial, there was a new development. A charge of murdering Becky was made against Mundy and Smith jointly. Mm. The reason for the joint charge was that forensic evidence, mm -hmm. which showed that the murder had been carried out by more than one person and that more than one person had carried the victim to the spot where the fatal wounds were inflicted out in the middle of the road. Relying on the fact that he had pleaded guilty and was sentenced after an accessory after the fact, Mundy applied for an order quashing the new charge. Yeah, okay, which I would expect. On February 6, 1998, a judge dismissed that application. So, oh, no, oh, we're oh, going to go ahead with it. Okay. On March 26th, the Court of Appeal allowed an appeal and granted an order prohibiting the Attorney General from proceeding with the charge of murder against Mundy. The Court of Appeal ruled that a conviction of murder would be inconsistent with Mundy's previous conviction as mm -hmm. an accessory after the fact. Mm -hmm. Thanks to the centuries-old double jeopardy laws, you cannot be tried for the same crime twice. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking, and shit. On July 6, 1998 the Privy Council dismissed the Crown's petition to charge Mundy alongside Smith. <sighs> so, Mundy, you're doing your five years. Five years. The lead prosecutor on the case left the island a week before Smith's trial in the fall of 1998. What? Leaving it to a newcomer to take on with the case. A, with a week? A week. No, no. Oh, my God. The trial against Smith alone began on November 23rd, 1998, the Crown's case was that two persons were involved in the murder. Mundy's semen had been found in the victim. The circumstantial evidence that Mundy was involved in the murder was strong. The Crown's case against Smith was equally based on strong circumstantial evidence. The problem is there was no DNA evidence that proved that <sighs> Mundy was there. So it's going to look more like he's the accessory. The Crown had a statement from Mundy implicating Smith in the murder, but declined to call him because he was already proven unreliable. The defense could have invited the judge to request the prosecution to tender Mundy as a witness for the cross-examination, but they didn't because they didn't want to have to deal with him. Defense counsel then made two submissions at the close of the case for the Crown. One, that the judge should stop the case because it was an abuse of the process of the court. And two, there was no case for Smith to answer. Yeah. The judge agreed and summed up his conclusion as follows. Quote, I rule that the quality of the evidence is poor and the inferences which the prosecution are asking this court to draw from the circumstantial evidence, which are inferences, in my view, no reasonable jury could draw. In conclusion... I take the law as I find it after weighing the balance of the public interest as regards to the abuse of process. I rule that there is no case to answer. Holy shit. The case was thrown out. Smith was free to go and efforts to retry him also failed. You know, and I can't fault the judge. I can't fault the judicial system. I can fault heavily the prosecutors who sought for an early uh, especially if they know that there's testing for DNA happening, yeah. but they rush to get a uh, plea of guilty. Yep. Oh, God. 
According to the Toronto Star, quote, half the people on the jury were crying, Dave Middleton says. They couldn't believe it. Yeah. What followed was a series of futile attempts to retry Smith rejected by Britain's Privy Council because he had already stood trial once. Bermuda authorities would later concede the family had suffered, quote, a great injustice, but nothing changed. In 2007, internationally renowned human rights lawyer Sherry Booth, wife of former British Prime Minister Tony Blair, argued Smith's murder charge was wrongly dismissed and that Monday should have faced more serious charge. She was going to straighten it out. And we were going to get a retrial, Middleton says. That didn't happen. Oh, God. Ultimately, he says he had to just move on. I mean, yeah, you hate that, but... After a few years, you somehow managed to put it in the rearview mirror instead of out front all the time. It never goes away. I still think of her as being 17. Ten years after the murder, Bermuda compensated the Middleton family for pain and suffering. The check was for $2,840.63. Are you kidding me? Nope. Holy, Mike, what have you done to me? The, holy shit. Holy shit. Holy Maybe shit. Maybe things have changed there. I don't know, but... I can't, I just can't believe this. So Kirk Mundy, he served two decades in a Bermudan jail for the bank robbery that he was on bail for at the time of Rebecca's murder. So he did more, more time, time for the, bank, for the bank robbery. After he got out, he was deported back to Jamaica. In 2002, Justice Smith was sentenced to 18 months in prison for stabbing one woman and fighting with another. And who knows where he is now? Leopards continue to have spots, I guess. And that's it for this week's case. I am beyond pissed off, Mike. Well. This I, is just. I he, told you as we were coming in you that did. you would be mad. You absolutely did. And you're absolutely right. I can't believe it. They lost their 17-year-old daughter. Yeah. And there's no justice. No, none. That father, Mr. Middleton, I mean, my God, the strength he has to be able, I, I'm not strong enough. I wouldn't be able to move on. No. I would and be. who knows if he has really been able to. I would be doing everything in my power. I would be in prison as well for stalking and then killing these sons of bitches. Well, I, I couldn't like, oh my God. Yeah, it's not good. Holy shit. And then, the, hey, sorry about that. Here's here's two grand. Fuck oh, off. It's almost three. Like, <laughs> holy shit. What a slap in the face. I, I hope to hell they have later sued. There's a lot of Bermudans who feel a lot of shame around this yeah, particular hand, yeah. handling. Yeah, uh, and day. I don't think it's a reflection. It shouldn't be a reflection on, on the people. Of, or the country itself. Or, or yeah, or, the country. Yeah. Uh, this is how... How Steven Seagal it made this is how he made movie. Somebody harmed his family. Right, it's taken. I would it's be a, going. A I movie. would be going after the prosecutors. Yeah, I would go bad. I would be this evil rogue. Scott's uh, Breaking Bad over here. Yeah, I'm like I'm like sniping. Oh my god. Yeah, I'm just so goddamn pissed. Fuck. Yeah. Oh well. Let's move on to some voicemail. Something that will oh, make you uh, feel a little less upset. Oh, I hope to hell so. If I'm, if any of you left a bad voicemail, I'm going to... Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Let's just hope there's none of that. Oh, my God. If you want to leave us a voicemail, you can leave us one at one eight seven seven three two seven five seven eight six or one eight seven seven D A R K P T N. If your call stands out, you might hear it on the show. 
And uh, let's let's get started with these. Yeah. All right. Here's a short one. Looks like a local caller. Let's have a listen. Hell yeah, brother. This is Lee from Markdale, Ontario. Chapman's Ice Cream, ever heard of it? Comes from us. Just want to let you know that your podcast is amazing. Coronavirus? Boo. Dark poutine? Yeah. Hell yeah, brother. Stay safe. Wow, that was the okay. strangest Ontarian accent that I think it I've was ever biz- heard. It was very bizarre, but I Chapman's ice cream, love it. Olivia yep. has a peanut allergy, so so Chapman's is one of the only ice creams uh, she can have. Well, there you go. So, so you hear I that, love, Chapman's ice cream? Yeah, uh, I love, I, we, we will do advertise on this show if you give us money. Yeah, and, and ice cream. <laughs> yeah, it's all we'll eat. That's the only ice cream we eat in our house because... Of of Olivia and it's delicious. It is. It's the, I really let's love stop, it. Let's stop advertising for them for free. But it's delicious. <laughs> All right. Let's see if the next voicemail can measure up to that one. I'm saying I'm I'm gonna set, call it. I'm gonna say no. Hell right yeah! <laughs> right now, Chapman's ice cream. Uh, let's 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 hear from somebody else. Hello, fellas. This is Bridget Chang from Stillwell, Kansas, calling. Since you two are always busy shitting in your own hats, I thought I'd share some things from my family as I was growing up on a farm in southeast Kansas. I'd get up on Saturday mornings knowing full well that my mom was at the grocery store, but like clockwork, I'd ask my dad where she was, to which the response was, she went to poop in the hogsader. No, Dad, really, where is Mom? She went to Chicopee to the street dance. Dad, where is Mom? She went to see a man about a dog. If you asked my dad how he was, he'd say, oh, I'm fine as frog's hair split four ways. If something smelled bad, why, that smell would knock a buzzard off a gut wagon. If you spoke nonsense, he'd tell you to poop in one hand and put that in the other and see which one was heaviest. He was never wrong. If someone was cheap, they'd fart on a rock and scrape off the juice. It never rained unless it was raining fish hooks and hammer handles. And the annoying noisiness was related to the sound of a cat in a bag. One thing for sure, he never shit in his own hat because he was too full of it and still is. And he turns 90 on October 2nd. Thanks for being fine as frog's hair, boys. Hope to see you at Chicopee someday. Love, Bridget. Well, thanks, Bridget. That was incredible. Holy shit. Okay, yeah, you did it. You did it. (laughs) You did, wow. and happy ninetieth to pops on the second. Yeah. Happy birthday, Dad! Wow, wow. <laughs> can can we hang out with you guys? Yeah, I want I want to listen to those colloquialisms over and over again. I want to come and photograph your family. Yeah, I want to just sit. We want to move to Chicopee just yeah. for a brief little visit, but yeah, yeah. yeah. We'll we'll quarantine for two weeks. Yeah, well, we can like, still do the show you know, in I a hotel. What, I wonder what kind of uh, meals they would cook for us. Because you know it's not just going to be like, here's a hamburger. There's got to be some grits in there. Oh, my God. That was just, whew. Yeah. Good luck to the next one. Okay. That's not interesting. It's not. Uh, here's another one. Uh, let's see this one. Oh, Stephanie. Okay. Hopefully it's her name is Stephanie. It's because, probably Stuart. Yeah. Because sometimes... <laughs> The translation. Yeah. All right. Let's try another one. Here is, look, this one looks another, uh, this one looks like it might be local. 
It's oh. another 604 yeah. number anyway. Hey, Scott and Mike. It's Caitlin. I'm from Maple Ridge, BC. After listening to the episode last week, I was sort of shocked. Maple Ridge is such a small town, and I don't know, I'm sort of younger, so I was sort of surprised to hear about the dark sort of history of Maple Ridge, especially thinking about the little kid that was attacked by dogs. At that time, I was about like four or five, so almost the same age as that kid, which sort of blows my mind. I guess they call it Maple Ditch for a reason. You guys probably know that saying. But yeah, I love your guys' show. Keeps me awake, driving to and from school and work. And you guys are doing an awesome job. Thanks for everything you do. Don't forget to go shit in your hat. Thanks, guys. Bye. Well, thanks, Caitlin. That was, that was a really nice little message. And uh, I've never heard of it called Maple Ditch, to be honest I with you. I have heard it called that. But uh, it, when I heard it called that, I was working there in the movies. Okay. Yeah, you did a lot. You worked out there a lot. You lived I, out there. So I lived I'm, out yeah. there and I worked out there. Yeah. 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 I, and I'm, I'm, uh, we're stoked that we can provide you with entertainment uh, to and from school. And also surprise you with stuff about your hometown. That's kind of my goal. Actually, yeah. Is younger folks may not have heard of yeah. even this case that we just covered today. Yeah. They may never have heard of these things. And so let's keep these things top of mind because it's super interesting yeah. to find out that wait a minute, this happened and a family really got hosed. Like, oh, I don't want to, let's not go back to it, Mike. Okay. Oh, I'm going to start flipping shit. <sighs> well, uh, again, if you want to leave us a voice, voice, again, if you want to leave us a voicemail, you can do so at one 327 5786 or 1-877-DARKPTN. And I guess it's time for Patreon. Let's see if we got any love in the Patreon and things this week. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Okay. So first up, uh, (laughs) we have somebody (laughs) who, I don't know where she's from. Her name is Deborah Netzger. Oh, Deborah Netzger. Yeah, she's from uh, Moroni. Which is in... Where the heck is yeah, Maroney? It, it, well... I'm My gl- Maroney. I, I'm glad you asked. Rhymes the baloney? It's from uh, the Comoros, which is near near Madagascar. Oh, wow. Yeah. Maroney. Yeah. Yeah. Comoros. Yeah. Near Mad- it's near Madagascar. Just for... People know that better than they know Comoros. Okay. So Comoros is yeah. a little island. Yeah. It is. Near Madagascar. It is. You know it too. See? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Wow. So this is how great this is. I am just, just a genius. Yeah. Yeah, we it, we're, actually Scott. We're geographically. Which you want that in my head? No, Mike. Don't diminish your 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 uh, geography abilities here. You know, you knew this. Okay, you knew this. So, um, what does Deborah Netzker do in Moroni, the She's capital of Comoros? Coconut bowling. She bowls coconuts. Yeah. Well, yeah. that sounds like a really fun thing to do. It really is. Have you done it before? Uh, no. No, it's re- it's a blast. Is it a high-paying job? No, it's not. No, <laughs> it's really not. It's all pretty much so volunteer. So she just does it to kill time. Yes, yes. And <laughs> yes. it's really difficult because, you know bowling balls, right? I do know bowling okay. balls. Do you know how... I'm s- aware of them. Do you know how smooth they are? It depends on the bowling ball. Well, <laughs> a good bowling ball is it's, it's sure. smooth this, uh, ball. Um, coconuts. Not smooth. Not smooth. And not f- completely round. Yeah. So, so you can... Don't Im- roll evenly. 
So you know how hard bowling can be with a perfectly smooth ball. Now imagine that with uh, like a misshapen orb that doesn't weigh nearly as much as. Do it, we really have to talk about misshapen balls on this show? <laughs> well, you you told me earlier you wanted to. Okay. Yeah. So I'm just fulfilling your dream. I thought that was a private conversation. Yeah. Is there really private in the world of podcasting, Mike? No. Okay. So yeah, it's really difficult, and you don't get paid much so you know great yeah think well thank you deborah yeah well. enjoy bowling those coconuts <laughs> in comoros yeah yeah the capital city is moroni where she lives uh -huh. yeah. yeah exactly where exactly you get it oh boy next we have zakia yep kudus yes and she is from edmonton alberta okay you just Wiped your brow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so what does Zakia do in uh, Edmonton? In Alberta? Edmonton? In Edmonton? Yeah. Uh, Zakia does, um, uh, Zakia works at a Kia dealership. dealership. Yeah. It's not spelled the same way. No, I know. It's just coincidence. Just coinky dink? Big fan of Kias. Zakia really, really is a big fan. They're making some outstanding vehicles now. Are they? Yeah, yeah. Have you seen the Kia Telluride? It's a really sweet ride. It's a big SUV. It's nice. It's nice. Yeah. You, it's a Kia can sell you Are you thinking about uh, going? No, no. No, no, no. I, I'm not. I'm not. Uh, I'm not moving from the Mazda train. Also, Mazda, advertise with us. Yeah. We drive your vehicles. We Come do on. a lot. I've had like five yeah, in the last three. 13 years. Have I had three? No, I've had two. <clears throat> two, yeah. Yeah. I don't but they're even, making they're making yours in a, a turbo now. So. Oh no! Yeah. So okay, well, Zakia maybe can sell me a Kia, mm -hmm. but maybe it's a Kia Mazda dealership. I don't think it could be. Such no, it, it, there it, it is. It may be in like an auto area. Yeah, yeah, and, and she just she moonlights at the Mazda. She works for the auto mall. Oh, okay. So whichever dealership you need. Yeah. yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Next up. Mm -hmm. From Canning, Nova Scotia, hmm. a place that I know well. Yeah. Annabeth Campbell. Oh. Yeah. So I know I... Canning very well. Do you? And yeah. yeah. So what does um, Annabeth do in Canning? You would think she's she cans. No. But no, that's not what she does. In Canning, she... Um, oh, God, what was it? She was just telling me all about it in, in extreme detail. I'm trying to remember these details. Yeah. Um, yeah, she works at a, um, oh shit, yeah, she's a police officer. In Canning. Yeah. So she'd be an RCMP then. Yes. Okay. Yes. Fair enough. Well, thank you for keeping us yeah. safe. Yeah. My favorite place in Canning, the Ice Cream Ice Cream Shop. Oh, man. At 90, 9838 Main Street in Canning. This is like advertisement central. No, I just, you know, if you want, if you want to go get good ice cream. I do. Go. I, Carol, Carol and I went there with my birth mom, Diane. Oh, man. We've been there twice, I oh, think. Yeah. God, now I just like one ice cream. <laughs> what the hell? I do too. Yeah. Um, next we have Elizabeth Rankin. Oh. And she's from Cleelum. Washington. That name's actually familiar. I don't know where Cleelum is. Uh, it's in Washington. I know it's in Washington. Oh, okay. So, so what does Elizabeth do in Cleelum, Washington? Oh, 
She is a um, a deer antler shaver. Okay, because they do get fuzzy. Mm-hmm. They do get fuzzy. Yeah. yeah. So she shaves the fuzz. She trims them. Yeah, she trims them. Well, that's nice. Yeah. She, yeah. It's it's. Uh, does she have to make the deer unconscious before she does this? Or no, no. It... She's got. She's very, very talented. She has a great, oh, calm, gentle. very yeah. calm, yeah. soothing voice. Ooh. You have to speak in this like ASMR. Yep. Yeah. And then it's okay. Your little deer antlers. I'm not, I'm not here to harm you. No. I just want to <laughs> trim your. Fur. Please stop. I just want to trim your fur. <laughs> You will not be trimming my fur, sir. A happy, happy little deer. Happy, <laughs> oh, happy this is disturbing. Deer. I am, I am not you feeling want, well. I actually feel sick to my you stomach. Want your fur trimmed. It's going to be okay. And so that's it for our shoutouts this no, week. Nobody it gave us any love on. Uh... Okay. This is going to work out. Just a little clippy clip here. No, it's going on too. A little trimmy trim. I'll just edit. it. <laughs> All right. Uh, that's it for our shout outs this week. Uh, yes. We well, had an easy week. Quick and to the point. Quick and to the point. Thanks to all our patrons and donut money donors, past and present, for your help to keep us doing what we do. If you want to show your support of the show, you can become a patron mm-hmm. at patreon.com slash dark poutine. Or for a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal at our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. And if you don't already, subscribe to the show. It'd mean a lot to us if it you would. did. It you would. can easily find us on any podcatcher that you use. Check out our website, darkpoutine.com, for show notes and other cool stuff. Give us a like or follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening and tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. Until we return... Don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye-bye.